uh, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to just welcome you here this morning. Uh, no snow, yay, or boo, depending how you look at it. Uh, but who doesn't remember that opening clip? You know, I don't know. A lot of us probably grew up with that. Uh, that show starring, you know, Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, first aired, get this, way back in 1968. And it ran until 2001, 33 years of won't you be my neighbor? Uh, and it all began because Fred Rogers, who was a retired Presbyterian pastor, he was a puppeteer, an actor, and a writer, uh, he wasn't really happy with the messages that television programming was sending to kids at the time. And so he set out to change that. And he started Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And he would talk to uh, kids at their level about, you know, Things like divorce, the loss of a, a parent, or bullying, all that type of stuff. And he would talk to them at their level to help them work through that, some of the big stuff in life. And I don't think Mr. Rogers, for a second, ever imagined the impact or the success this simple children's show would have. In the end, Fred McFeely, that's his middle name, I'm not kidding, uh, McFeely Rogers received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor a civilian can ever receive in the United States. He received 40 honorary degrees, was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame, and he was ranked number 35 out of the top 50 TV Guide all-time TV star list. And there's some pretty big names on there. Several buildings and works of art in his home state of Pennsylvania are named after him in his memory. And get this, the Smithsonian Institute displays one of his trademark sweaters, and they actually label it as a treasure of American history. Get that. All because he cared for kids. That was it. And as we heard in that clip, Mr. Rogers started every program the same way, by asking a question. Won't you be my neighbor? Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Who Cares, where we've been exploring this idea, uh, what it is that uh, God's heart beats for, who it is that he beats for. And we found the answer, you know, we've been kind of checking this verse out uh, in the book of James in the Bible. Uh, and we, we kind of get the answer in this, in this verse where James writes, religion, we talked about this in the first week, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and, their, and widows in their distress. You know, in other words, help the helpless. Bring hope to the hopeless. And I don't know about you, but it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I love Clarity. Clarity works for me on so many different levels. Uh, whenever possible, I love things when they're black and white, crisp, clear, concise. Uh, maybe the same is true for you. Uh, it's especially true for me when it comes to instructions. Uh, if you've ever bought something that requires assembly, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You know, especially the guys. You know, it's, instructions is that white piece of paper that we usually throw away. It's, I don't need those. Uh, I remember the time my wife brought some bookshelves home. For the house, and which was fine, <laughs> except they came unassembled. And when she brought them in, she says, could you put these together for me? This wave of nausea just kind of washed over me as I had 
these memories of this time that we both tried putting together this barbecue that we had bought. Uh, you know, out of all the things, we've been married just over 35 years, and of all the things that tested our marriage the most, it was probably that barbecue. Uh, as we, you know, we, we were trying to interpret and decipher these, what were supposed to be simple instructions. And it's like, I don't know whoever came up with that. It was probably the engineer that designed the thing. It was like, there's no way we were going to get this thing together. And it, it, it got me to thinking, you know, one of the neat things I get to do as a pastor is officiate weddings. And as awesome as that is, it's what happens before the wedding day that I, that I love the most. And it's, it's hanging out with the couple and giving them and working with them and giving them tools that they can use to help them have the best shot at a great marriage. One that's steeped in friendship and love and respect. But here's the thing. As good as all that is, you know, we got some really cool things that we worked through. Based on my experience with the barbecue, I think a far better, more effective way would be to go buy a barbecue, get some tools, and throw the couple and the barbecue and the tools in a little room and get them to put it together. I think that would be the best training ever. Now, back to the shelving units. I got all the parts out, and I laid them out on the floor, and it was time to start piecing them together. And so with nervous apprehension, I reached for the instructions. And I opened them up to the first page, and I couldn't believe what I saw. The instructions were as clear as a bell. You know, like they couldn't get any simpler. And it didn't take me long. I was standing there admiring my handiwork. Like, whoa, look at that. And I didn't have leftover parts or anything. They actually looked like a bookshelf, too. But it gets better. After standing there admiring my handiwork, my wife walks in, and she... She's like, ooh, they look good. Nice job, honey. You're really handy. <laughs> it's like, now that's what I'm talking about, right? Clarity. I love clarity. It works for me until it doesn't. And here's what I mean. Clarity is very much like a bright light in that it leaves us nowhere to hide. Clarity doesn't play favorites. It doesn't choose sides. Clarity simply reveals things for what they are. Right, wrong, good, bad. Speed limits signs are a good example of this. Here's what I mean. They're pretty clear, right? It says maximum 50. It's pretty simple. Don't exceed 50 kilometers an hour. Uh, Yet, when we find ourselves pulled over for doing 80 in a 50 zone... Well, it's really interesting how quickly we try and blur the line of, you know, what side of the line am I on here? Uh, You want to blur the line when you get pulled over for speeding, just ask the officer, well, define speeding for me. What does that mean exactly? And you put it like that, and it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? You know, like, you know you're speeding. Uh, Do you remember those conversations with your mom? When you were like, you asked me if their parents were going to be home. And I knew that eventually they were going to be home. You didn't say, are they going to be home during the party? Or, officer, the sign says, no skateboards. I only have one. Right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And we're always looking for loopholes. A way to get around a rule or a law which is the very definition of a loophole. Loophole is defined as a means of evasion or a means of avoidance. 
That's what loopholes do. They muddy the waters, stewing, stirring in a little bit of ambiguity and doubt. And sometimes we latch onto the opportunity to, to justify ourselves, you know, our actions or our inactions. And James, you know, he's pretty clear when he states what God cares about. To look after orphans and widows. It's interesting, though. The verse doesn't stop there. Uh, here's what comes after that part. And I'm going to read the whole verse in, so you can have it in context. It says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, that last part of that verse, when I was growing up, really bugged me a lot. I grew up, you know, going to church, attending church. And that last part always confused me. And here's why. It was taught in a way that it shouldn't have been taught to me. What I was taught was that last part of that verse meant that as a Christian, I was only to hang around other Christians. We were to kind of sequester ourselves huddle together and avoid hanging out with bad people because, who do bad things because, well, if you start hanging around them, you might become a bad person that's doing bad things and better not do that. They could influence us. We'd be contaminated, polluted. And so we need to circle the wagons, protect ourselves. You know, and I always found that odd because... Jesus always taught, and he lived out, that we should love others, love our neighbors. You know, and in that context, I think that last part of that verse was used as a loophole. To just avoid loving others. To avoid serving others that maybe don't hold to the same values or viewpoints or believe the same things, live a different way, dress a different way. We're to love our neighbors, to look after those that can't help themselves. And you know what? I, I, I kind of get where, you know, th- that teaching can come from because that can be hard, can it? Loving our neighbors, loving those that we don't maybe see the same as, you know, that we think differently. You know what I found? It's far easier to talk ourselves out of being neighborly than to actually be a neighbor. At least that's true for me. Because honestly, I'm not a very good neighbor. I'm not. Especially when it comes to knowing my neighbors. But I have my reasons. I mean, sometimes at the end of the day, I'm peopled out. Okay? As much as I love hanging around people, and that's what a lot of my job is, you know, around here, is just hanging out with people and and talking with him and walking with him. And I love it. I absolutely do. But sometimes at the end of the day, you know what? I just want to go home, close the door, morph into an introvert, crash on my recliner, and just zone out to Netflix. It's all I want to do. Another reason I don't do all that well in the neighbor department is I'm busy. Really, really busy. I got things to do. And you know what? Being a neighbor, it takes time. Time that I tell myself, eh, I just don't really have enough of. And so I don't. Won't you be my neighbor? There's a quote from Mark Twain. I came across it years ago, and it's just 
stuck with me. And maybe you've heard it. And he said this. It ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. You know, James along with Jesus are, are, were both pretty clear when they taught that we are to love our neighbors. To look after those that find themselves beyond providing for themselves for whatever reason. They don't leave a lot of wiggle room. But here's the thing. For me, when I read that, I often squirm a little listening to that. And I kind of feel like this guy that Jesus told a story about in the Bible. And we, we find this story in the New Testament in a book called Luke. And Luke records this story about this expert in religious law who, as you read this story and, and through the biblical narrative, and we touched on this again in week one about religion being, you know, ticking all the boxes and doing the right things and following everything perfectly. Uh, he's thinking the same thing. This is, this is what he believes is the way you find favor with God is do the right thing. Dot all the I's, cross all the T's. In other words, it's all about being religious. And to show Jesus just how religious he is and how good he is, he asked Jesus one day, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus replied, well, what's written in the law? How do you, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? You know, in other words, you're the expert. You tell me. And so this guy does. He, he jumps on the opportunity. He says, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love God. Love others. Seems pretty simple, right? Clear? But it's here where this guy begins to get a little nervous. Based on the question he's going to ask, it seems he's doing all right. He feels he's doing all right on the love God category on that side of the line, but... He's not so sure about love your neighbor. So in an attempt to find a loophole, to kind of blur the line a bit, he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? You know, define neighbor for me, Jesus. Who is that exactly? Is it my family? Is it the guy that lives right next door to me, maybe across the street, the family up the street? Is it the single mom with two kids who lives in the condo two floors down? I mean, who is it? The clarity that has worked so well for him up to this point is now the very thing threatening to reveal his shortcomings. Because that's what clarity does. So he does what we tend to do when we find ourselves in that position. He begins to justify himself. He tries to introduce some uncertainty by getting all legalistic and all hung up on semantics in the hope that he'll create enough wiggle room that he can kind of sneak past and get a pass. So he asked Jesus, you know, like, who is my neighbor exactly? Jesus does what Jesus always did. When he was asked a question, he answered it by telling a story. And so in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
just time out for a second because there's, there's some really important information in those first couple of sentences. You see, back when this was written, when this happened, people were identified generally by two things. What they wore and how they spoke. This guy had literally been stripped of his identity. He had been stripped naked. And by what it says in the text, we don't know for sure, but it's pretty safe to say he probably couldn't speak. He was left half dead, lying at the side of a road. He could have been anybody. And that's Jesus' point. Jesus continues. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, both of these men are part of the religious establishment. One's, you could say, you know, in today's language, it would be a pastor, and the other one's like an associate pastor. They're both heading down this road. They see this guy, and they go way around him because, here's why, the rule at the time that they followed was that they could not come in contact with a dead body or someone who was a non-Jew. They could only hang around with people like their own. This guy, they don't know who he is. He can't speak. He's got no clothes. He's unidentifiable. And so they just pass him on by. They would be deemed unclean, defiled, if they went and touched him. Which meant they would be forbidden to actually do their priestly duties. Until they went through this very arduous painstaking, time-consuming purification process. And they probably ran through their head. It's like, oh, do I want to go through all that or that? And so they don't. Because they don't know if this guy's dead or if he's Jewish. And so they move on. But a Samaritan, Jesus says, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, this would have got eyebrows raised all through the crowd. Because at the time this was all written, there was an intense level of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. They did not like each other at all. In fact, relations were so strained that if a Jew was traveling from one town to another and the most direct route would take them through Samaritan territory, they would sooner go around, even if it meant adding days to their trip. Because it was unthinkable to even touch Samaritan soil. Let alone maybe run into a real live one. Far better to put a few extra miles on the family camel than to risk that. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn... And took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And he says, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra costs you may have. And then Jesus looks at the religious expert and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out the answer to that one, right? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
I saw this picture on my Instagram feed this past week and thought it quite fitting with the snow we had. Uh, I loathe the snow <laughs> because it means I have to shovel my driveway. And it's not something I really look forward to. I don't enjoy it much at all. I think it's actually a waste of time because I know it's going to warm up and it's all going to melt anyway. Um, but you know what? It was snowing so much, it's like, I have to go out and clean the driveway. So I did. And you know what happened? I met my neighbors. We started shoveling the driveways together and the sidewalks. And embarrassingly, my neighbor right next to us, I met for the first time and they moved there in July. I've got to get better at this stuff. Um, who is my neighbor? I think Mr. Rogers had a better question. Won't you be my neighbor? For me, that's proactive. It puts us in a, a forward-moving stance. And it does away with the need for a loophole. Because in this story... Our neighbors are the people all around us, the people beside us, in front of us, behind us. It doesn't matter who it is. We're neighbors. I heard one pastor define neighbor as this, as being anyone in need who I'm in a position to help. And I think that's a great definition. But for me, it leaves room for me to pass by, to go around, to ignore and convince myself that I'm not the guy to help. I'm not in a position to help. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. It's not my problem. Jesus says, just help. Just love. Don't worry about what it looks like or how much time it's going to take. You see, followers of Christ, if you look at the history of Christians all throughout they did things that got people scratching their head. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you helping these people? Followers of Christ don't look for workarounds and loopholes. Religious people do. A follower of Jesus is a person who wakes up every morning and asks this question. What does love require of me today? And it can be very, very simple. It could be as simple as stopping and holding the door for somebody. Helping someone to the car with their groceries. Shoveling a driveway. Taking time to call someone and encourage them. Just to say hi. To cross the road. Let me leave you with this thought. Aren't you glad God didn't look at you, didn't look for a loophole with you? Aren't you glad that God didn't get out the Bible and kind of flip through and said, I don't think so. Aren't you glad that God didn't come to you and say, I've been taking notes and I've been writing down things that you've been doing or not doing your whole life, all the things you're thinking, and now you want me to take care of you? Are you kidding me? Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I have given God 10,000 reasons, 10,000 loopholes not to love me. But the cool thing is he does anyway. 
The same is true for you. And the best proof of that is the fact that he came to this planet to be with us, to live with us, to show us a better way to relate to one another. And that's how we love God, by loving one another. Jesus, when he came, he came to to serve, not be served. And isn't that what good neighbors do? Really glad you're here with us on this journey and just invite you to pray with me. Clarity. Uh, God, sometimes, you know, black and white, as, as great as it can be, can sometimes just like, oh, I'm, I'm not maybe loving people the way I should. And, and I know my propensity is to, to start making excuses, looking for reasons why I didn't, try to blur the line a little bit. I just love the fact that you came and you just said, look, this is so, I'm going to make this so simple. Just love one another. Love your neighbor. And in doing that, you're, you're loving me. And that's, that's my heart for this church, this city. That we would love this city in a way that would get people raising their eyebrows. That we wouldn't look for excuses workarounds, loopholes, we would just simply love because you first loved us. We thank you. Amen.